giant robots smashing into other giant robots. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Giant Robots Smashing into G- Other Giant Robots podcast. I'm Ben, and I'm here today with Derek Reimer from Drip. Hi, Ben. How's it going, Derek? Good. How are you? I'm good. Uh, so I was researching you for the podcast, and so, and we've also been friendly for a while, so I have a good sense of your bio, but I wanted to hear it in your own words. Like, How would you describe to people what you do? Sure. So I would call myself a full-stack developer at heart. Mm-hmm. I'm a, a Ruby developer, and... Um, about five or six years ago, I started getting really interested in the startup space and building and launching uh, SaaS apps. So that was like right after college. Um, I really started getting interested in in doing web development professionally. Uh, before that, I hadn't really thought of it as you know, an actual career path. But when I discovered startups, SaaS apps, things that are actual business to business products and not just, you know, social networks or kind of the typical Silicon Valley startup, that's that's when I really started to get uh, interested in it. Nice. So yeah, so I mean, my journey kind of goes through like a few years of experimentation, building SaaS apps. That's kind of when I got into Rails and um, was competing in like coding competitions and things like that. And that's where I met uh, my eventual uh, business partner, Rob. And uh Drip started and the rest is history. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you are co-founder of Drip. Yes. Uh, what does Drip do? Yeah, so Drip is a marketing automation platform. So if you're familiar with a tool like MailChimp or something like that, that would be considered like a traditional email marketing platform. Mm-hmm. And so Drip uh, has you know basically the same functionality with a little bit more layered on, um, or actually quite a bit more layered on. So it kind of lets you track the things that your customers are doing on your website or in your product and trigger more intelligent automated emails kind of based on what they do. Gotcha. And uh, Drip was recently acquired by Leadpages. Yes. That's yep. a big change. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. Um, it entailed uh, uh, Rob and I and a few of our other team members uh, moving out here to Minneapolis. So, still getting settled in here, um, but it's been a it's been a really interesting experience, kind of going through, you know, acquisition, negotiation, that whole phase, and you know, ultimately uh, making a, a move and, uh, and kind of joining a larger company. It's been a it's been an interesting experience. So, I know you listen to Giant Robots a little bit. And you know that Chris uh, is going back to consulting. And so suddenly I was without a co-host. So I thought it would be cool to, to tell the story of how I got you on the podcast. So you're going to be joining for uh, four episodes as sort of short-term co-host with potentially reevaluating after that. And we'll just see how it goes. And I think the story is kind of interesting because it is similar to other things. <laughs> it's similar to something that has worked for me in the past. So I sent you an email saying, hey, what's up? Do you want to be a co-host? We've talked about this. You and I had a chat at MicroConf, which we both attended. And you were like, I'm, I'm trying to like raise my profile a little bit. I'm interested in doing some stuff. And I actually even recommended that you start a podcast. Yep. Um, and so I was like, oh, perfect. Like Derek is, this is a, per- Derek is a perfect fit for short-term co-host of Giant Robots. At the time, you were selling two companies and moving. Yes. <laughs> so, so like you have like, you had the perfect excuse, which is I'm selling two companies and moving right now. Right. Uh, I don't want to commit to a podcast, uh, which made perfect sense. But I decided to give it one more shot. You sent you so you said you know thanks. I'm flattered, but but basically no. And uh, I waited a couple of days, and then I wrote an email and basically pitched you again on it. So I tried to come up with like my best email of like here's why it's good for you. Here's why it's good for Drip. Here's why it's easy. And after that, you said yes. Yeah, it. I got I got to give you props for that. It definitely 
gave me pause, made me think long and hard about it. I knew that I knew what the right answer was. Mm. And I think it was my own apprehension about, I don't know, putting myself out there. I'm not typically one to seek the spotlight. And so, you know, it's kind of this internal battle. Like I know that I could be sharing some things I've learned through my journey, but at the Mm -hmm. same time, just I have a lot of, you know, apprehension about, about putting myself out there. So Mm. I appreciate your effort and, uh, it definitely worked. Yeah, that imp- that apprehension I think is is pretty common, especially among like developer types. I think yeah. there are actually a lot of there are a few developers that I know that are amazing and have so much to that they could share that they but they choose not to. I think right. this is like a common sticking point for people. No, I think you're right, and so I think it's kind of built into my personality, and so I appreciate you uh, pulling me out of my comfort zone. <laughs> totally, and, and kudos to you for for being willing. Yeah, but but that like that second effort thing i think is a i've used that I mean, tactic i guess is a strong word for it but I've, I've had that work sometimes in the past it's one of those things where one that that second follow-up often is what does the trick yeah did you did you pick that up from somewhere or is, is that just kind of a, a ben ornstein original i don't know i i'm not sure it's so unique that like anyone invented it versus it's just like it's just like just try again right is, is the whole thing but I have had a couple things in my life that initially started off as no's and turned into yeses with just like a, well, let me, let me try one more time and just see what happens. Right. And I'll be honest, I had a hunch that there was a little bit of your own trepidation keeping you from doing it. So I was like, maybe if I just, this, in this particular case, there's not like, that whole like, I'm busy thing is true of everyone. Sure. You, you know, like, which is kind of a weird state of the world. But if you ask anyone, like, how's work? Everyone's like, busy. Right. Like, right. Of, of course you're busy. That's that's what you do. Like you go to work and you do things. So it's one of those sort of non reasons, I guess. It's like right. you're, you're too busy to make time for this or like I'm too busy for something that's as unimportant as this right. is often how it reads or or busy sounds good, but I'm actually kind of worried about it. Yeah. I mean, it's like a, with a lot of things that are that are hard in life, like if this is this is a hard thing for me to do. And so is exercise and so is other things oh, that are yeah. maybe not enjoyable. So you always, you know, manage to find an excuse for those things. Uh, cool. I'm, gl- I'm, glad you're, I'm glad you're here. I think it's going to be interesting. Yeah. So one thing that I think has not been talked about a lot on the internet is the infrastructure behind Drip. Hmm. So as far as I know, you're sending quite a bit of email and doing quite a bit of work. And so I'm just curious if you could give us sort of a high level overview of what the architecture looks like. And maybe we'll even dive down into some of that. Sure. Drip is a... Amazon Web Services hosted application. So mm-hmm. we have kind of a large cluster of servers um, all in the AWS ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Um, we have like a fleet of six front end servers, between eight and 10 job servers right now that kind of chew through a tons of background jobs. And then we have some beefy um, database boxes and Redis boxes and Elasticsearch. So there's a lot going on in the in the background. Um, at the core, it's it's a monorail, so it's mm-hmm. a pretty monolithic Rails application. Mm-hmm. We have a few ancillary services like our click tracking service that runs. It's a Node app that kind of sleeps on its own, you know, set of servers. But for the most part, everything is kind of centralized in the the core Rails application. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, we we do quite a bit of volume. We send, I think, as of last month, it was around 50 million emails a month. Mm-hmm across you know several thousand different customers so um a lot of volume to contend with there and for the most part we try to keep things pretty simple so you know the database is a postgres database that handles right now it handles all of our analytics computations and and also our more transactional type things like rendering um you know deliveries and inserting the contents in the database and things like that Mm -hmm. um and then we 
rely heavily on sidekick for our background processing so mm. you know you can think of like when a when a broadcast needs to send um that ultimately results in a flurry of uh, sidekick jobs that get pushed into the queue and then we try to chew through those as fast as possible so mm-hmm. that's kind of the, the high level overview of of drip i've heard great things about sidekick yeah yeah it's like if you if you use rescue you know it's kind of similar to that except mm-hmm. you get threads so um for things that you know, or maybe a little IO intensive, um, you can kind of benefit from, from not waiting on the CPU. So it's mm-hmm. been a really rock solid library and, um, yeah, it seems to be scaling well for us right now. That's very cool. Yeah. So you, you, you took this thing from one customer to thousands sending lots of emails. What have been the challenges along the way? Oh, geez. <laughs> I mean, cause so you're on, you're focused on the technical side, right? Are you, are you, do you call yourself CTO or something like that? Yeah. I mean, that was, that was kind of my, I mean, when you're a team of eight, those C-level titles are <laughs> right. kind of ridiculous. But yeah, I, gotcha. I, I lead up the engineering side. And so, yeah, I mean, we've we've hit a lot of challenges along the way. Generally, it's it relates back to our database. That's kind of our bottleneck, you know, um, mm-hmm. a lot of different things, wanting to query things out and insert things in at any given time. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think over the course of Drip's history, uh, every four to six months or so, we kind of have to pause from feature development and kind of circle back and and figure out how to overcome the next hurdle um, as it relates to dealing with large volumes of data. You know, Drip has a pretty heavy analytics component to it where like um, our customers install a snippet of JavaScript on their websites. And Mm -hmm. every time someone visits their website for the first time, it pings back to us. And then the customer can also send any additional events that are relevant to their marketing automation, like visited a pricing page or you know, watched a, a intro video or something like that. So we just have this constant fire hose of data flowing in. And, um, you know, those events all need to be processed because they may or may not be triggering um, automation rules on the back end. So mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's an ever growing pipe of data that's coming in all the time. And so I think, you know, figuring out how to process that in a performant manner and also present stats like this broadcast sent to 500,000 people was opened by 13.2%. You know, mm-hmm. being able to compute those rates is also a, another challenge. So typically it relates back to to database. We also, you know, end up in situations where, you know, our background queue grows so large that we're not able to keep up sometimes with the amount of jobs in it. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, that one, if you ask my wife, <laughs> she'll say like the the two dirty words in our house are database and queue because <laughs> those are the those are the two that have frequently uh, interrupt well not frequently but that have occasionally interrupted uh, you know evenings or weekends. Oh man, so. I believe it. I mean that that sounds like a healthy sign to me though that every so often you have to pause and like all right now we have enough data and growth that we have to go back and revisit some of these things. Yeah, and like as a, I mean, Drip is a bootstrap company, so mm-hmm. we didn't necessarily have the resources through our history to to beef up infrastructure too far ahead of our current um, growth. You know, so yep. so it's kind of like don't over engineer things, build it to the point where it it functions now, and then keep up on feature development. And when the need arises, circle back and kind of try to improve infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Do you review code before it gets merged in? 
Yeah. So generally, most most pull requests and things um, I take a look at. We now have a team of um, there's me and two other developers right now, and we're we're actually adding more to the team. Um, mm-hmm. Someone to focus on kind of back end scaling stuff, and then another to uh, to focus on design and UX. Mm. So typically, what what we try to do is kind of a peer review model where. For any given any given thing going into the code base, at least one other developer on the team uh, takes a look at the code and sanity checks it and and maybe points out stylistic changes and things like that. And so that's been kind of a process too, is trying to decouple me from being the bottleneck in our development pipeline. Mm-hmm. And that's that's something that's becoming even more apparent as we kind of scale up the team. Mm-hmm. Are you happy with the cleanliness of the code base? You know, I am pretty happy. Um, we got to a point maybe a year, year and a half ago where I was feeling like every every code review was kind of eclipsed by like little nitpicky changes and things like that in an effort mm-hmm. to keep keep the code base clean and consistent. And mm-hmm. it was around that time when we implemented RuboCop and that mm-hmm. like that was a major game changer for us um, because it just, you know, I like to call it nitpicking as a service. Like mm-hmm. it just makes it so that no human has to make those types of comments on pull requests anymore. You know, totally. I mean, we have it actually in our build process and the build will fail if one RuboCop, you know, issue arises. Uh-huh. So um, Hardcore. We, all, we all get bitten by it occasionally, but I think that has helped a great deal in helping us to keep a, a clean and consistent code base. So then we can just focus on more meaty things in code review. Mm-hmm. So stylistically, it sounds like you've you've got that locked down. I was thinking from like a technical debt sort of mm. point of view. Yeah. I feel like it's pretty good how it stands right now, but if we look out ahead and say what will how will this code base function when we have 10 times the number of customers that we do right now, you know, I can identify areas of the code base where like that will definitely need to be rearchitected. Um and mm-hmm. so I feel like we've we've done a pretty good job of keeping our technical debt low. Um mm-hmm. we've been focused on writing tests from the beginning and making sure we have high test coverage. But I think it kind of goes back to the to the thing of of trying not to over engineer or over architect things. Mm-hmm. Um, it just means that like certain subsystems will definitely need to be rewritten as we get to new levels of growth. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, totally. That makes perfect sense. Yeah, it's interesting, though. It's it's interesting, interesting to hear that you are happy overall with the cleanliness because I, I often hear from people that are running successful SaaS apps that along the way things got kind of crazy as just part of like dealing with growth and not having time to go back and clean things up or to do it necessarily right in the first place. And so it's it's interesting to see that sort of two sides of like very successful business. If you looked at the code, you'd be like, oh my God. Right. I mean, I think part of that speaks to like keeping relatively few hands in there uh, mm. and and kind of keeping a really tight code review process. Mm-hmm. And I know that we've we've kind of had the luxury of being able to go this far with a really small team. What it has meant is that maybe at times we can't ship features quite as fast as we would like to because, you know, in those times where we have to circle back on performance, for example, we it's pretty much an all hands on um, type of situation. So maybe there'll be a period of a few weeks or a month where we hardly ship any features at all. So mm-hmm. I think it it comes at a cost, but the benefit of that is on the on the flip side is that, you know, we're able to kind of keep a, a really tight watch on on the quality of the code going in. That's not to say that like drip doesn't have dark corners, you know, definitely does. There are mm-hmm. some subsystems in there that's like 
we all would rather not go into. <laughs> yeah. But I think that's probably true of any code base, you know. Yep. Do you basically just have one big models directory with with a lot of your logic in there? Like how are you structuring this? Yeah, so I'm a big fan personally of I hate this term because it's so generic, but like service objects, you know. So uh-huh. pretty much anything that that may require, you know, more than one model interacting with another or doing something else like sending a mailer we almost always put that into like a single purpose object. So we have like mm-hmm. a user registration object. We have a campaign creator object, broadcast sender, any of these things that like may involve more than one interaction. So I would say our services directory just, you know, has hundreds of, of Ruby classes in it and probably way more code in there than our actual models directory. Mm-hmm. And um, I found that this this pattern just kind of going back to Ruby fundamentals of like single responsibility principle and things like that. Mm-hmm. When we made that shift away from just fat models, everything in a model to to service objects, it kind of helped us have a clear path forward on, on architecture. Mm-hmm. I almost never regret opening a class and finding it to be very small. Yeah. But the opposite is definitely true. Right, right. It's like sometimes it, it makes it harder to see the forest for the trees kind of thing when you have a lot of small classes interacting. Like you have to sort of build up that graph in your head occasionally. Yeah, but overall, I found that to be easier to deal with than just well, if we just put it all in you know a couple places, and then you have, end up with god objects and and sort of these nasty this nasty coupling. Yeah, we still have some, like our account object and our user object are still much larger than I would like. Sure, of um, course. You know, you kind of have to like resist the urge to go through and refactor everything all at once. Mm-hmm. And you know, that's that's another point too. Like as as an application grows in just sheer lines of code and also number of customers and and the amount that's at stake for potentially breaking something, it definitely makes it harder to change over time, you know, and, and makes any even small refactorings just a little bit more uh scary. <laughs> yeah. If that's the right word for it. Totally. So. How do you prioritize what to work on? I am a little envious of your position where you, I'm guessing, you mostly just get to focus on the technical side because other people are thinking about customer support or marketing or things like that. But I also am imagining that there's a dialogue. So you're, you're, you're hearing from other people what the customers are asking for or whatnot. What does that look like? Yeah. So um, we do try to keep a pretty close watch on on kind of what's what's flowing through the customer support channels and what people are requesting. We also have, you know, a customer success team that is their specific responsibility is to kind of interface with customers, hear what their needs are and what what areas Drip is not serving them well. And so, you know, Rob and I, who are kind of leading the product side of the business, are regularly talking to, to customer success and to support to learn, just keep learning what what people are asking for. Um, and, and then we also have, you know, now that we're a part of lead pages, there's also kind of the, the side of like lead pages management and lead pages customers that, um, we can kind of forecast are going to need certain things as kind of lead pages and drip become more tightly integrated. So, you know, that's another source of, of things that could potentially be added to the drip roadmap. And so, um, we kind of pull in, you know, information from all these different channels and we use GitHub issues for, for tracking all of like individual tasks that we want to divide up amongst the team. Mm-hmm. And then I built a tool called code tree and that is basically project management um, on top of GitHub issues. And so mm-hmm. we use that to kind of prioritize. So each developer has a, has an ordered list of tasks that are top priority for them to work on. Mm-hmm. And of course we try to, you know, break features up into as small chunks as possible so that 
you know, we don't end up with these giant long spanning features if possible. Right. That's a challenge. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, you know, certain things like, like when we were building workflows, um, which mm-hmm. is like this this way to visually design a, a whole marketing um, flow from top to bottom. That was mostly me just working on it for, I don't know, five months. And mm. and in between that, you know, reviewing code and trying to keep other aspects of, of the development flowing. But, you know, those types of features are kind of the worst for, for morale. Like mm-hmm. when you're when you're Definitely. months in a room building this feature and not actually able to ship it in parts. So, I mean, mm-hmm. that's that's something we've learned. Like the more we can break things up into small pieces, the better. Did you enjoy that part where you got to kind of go off and, and hack on it and stay in the zone on it? Or was it frustrating because it, you couldn't ship it? I think there was there was two sides to it. On the one hand, I liked, you know, let's build this cool new thing. You know, that part was really exciting and really fun. At the same time, it's like, you know, I'm also put my business hat on and I'm, I'm watching, you know, the product move forward. I'm watching other our competitors in the market and just like wishing that this thing was live tomorrow and right. thinking about, you know, how can we break this down even smaller so that, or even into even a smaller MVP so that we can get this live for customers tomorrow. So there was mm-hmm. kind of that pressure that mounted over time of like, okay, this is taking a long time. This is taking longer than I want. You know, how can we get this out there? So I think, yeah, it was, it was kind of both sides actually. Yeah. So the, the workflows is a visual drag and drop type interface yeah. is a is drag and drop yeah it doesn't sort actually of. yeah it doesn't actually drag and drop yet that's something right. like we're going to layer on eventually um yeah. but it is like yeah visually laid out and you can click different points on there and uh, and stuff like that yeah. right so that there's some sort of layout thing where it's like okay here split the decision like the, now let's make a decision and like then, then, there, then we see a tree like here's the left right. side of the tree here's the right side of the tree depending on the outcome of that yep and then there are gates and delays and things like that like from from the outside it looks like quite a thing to build. Like there's a fairly complicated front end component of like how do I lay out these trees in a way that makes sense? Yeah. And then I also imagine a fairly complicated generation process or something in the background that creates whatever those rules are. Yeah. It was a fun project to build. Um it's actually on the front end is mostly SVG, so using the D3 library, hmm. which is sort of like jQuery for SVG. Mm-hmm. Um it's like kind of a, a standard library of, of different tools you can use. And then so you can tell it like, I want to draw a line between these two points and I want it to be curved so that it looks like a natural connection. And yep. so you don't have to actually do all the hardcore math to like draw splines and stuff like that. Like mm-hmm. it, it does all the computation for you. And it's an interesting, I actually really like the paradigm of D3 because it's it's kind of like declarative in the sense where you say like, here's the data that's going to drive the layout for this SVG mm-hmm. and here's the all the rules that dictate like how this data gets transformed into objects on SVG. So what you can do is as things change, you just kind of pass this new data structure in and it will automatically mutate itself to satisfy the data that you've passed in. Hmm. So it's like kind of a different paradigm than um, the more like procedural jQuery type stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a really... Uh, interesting learning curve for sure, but um, it was a fun project to build. Mm-hmm. Just to pick a simple example, there are times you can en- insert delays into a workflow. Mm-hmm. Like at this point, wait thirty minutes. How? What does that translate to into the back end? Basically, when you hit that point, 
We insert a record in a table that kind of corresponds to which subscriber was it and how long is the delay. Uh-huh. And then and then we schedule, uh, we use the scheduled queue a lot in, in Sidekick. So okay. we'll, uh, we'll put a scheduled job out at the time that the, that the delay is supposed to fire. And then when that time comes, we'll just double check to make sure that the subscriber is still actually in that workflow mm-hmm. um, and hasn't been removed through some other means. And if they still are there, then we'll make them proceed through. Gotcha. Um, so Sidekick has a queue where you can say, run this job at this time? Yeah. Yes. Okay. So, um, you know, workflows are really kind of powered by events. So, you know, each step could be, it could be an action, like send a campaign. It could be a delay. It could be a decision. Um, so things like a campaign, when you hit, when you hit a campaign node in a workflow, it'll start you on that campaign and then you kind of wait there until the campaign finishes. So mm-hmm. um, workflows are kind of designed to listen for different events, like the completed a campaign event that gets fired. And, and it's literally like a record that gets inserted for a subscriber. Um, when that happens, then all the workflows will be notified of it. And the, the workflow that started you on the campaign will know to move on once that event fires. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of the, the model that, that powers all of workflows. Cool. Sounds fun to build. Yeah. Challenging, but interesting. Yeah. There, there's like, there was some threading things that arose. Like mm. if multiple events are happening that are relevant to a workflow, how do you keep them from interacting with each other in weird ways? So, yeah, you know, anytime you're dealing with, with high level of concurrency with sidekick, then you have to, you have to worry about like controlling concurrency and making sure that weirdness is not happening. So, so did you end up doing some sort of locking in there? Yeah. So we, we're actually using um, Postgres advisory locks for that, which is like, instead of like locking a specific row in the database, you're basically just saying like, um, you're using Postgres as this shared data store to maintain a mutex. So you're saying like, you know, right now the application is operating on this specific um, piece of code and let's, anyone else who wants to execute this code has to wait until the lock is released. Mm -hmm. Um, And using Postgres for that because, you know, you could have, 50 sidekick threads wanting to all operate on that at the same time so damn that sounds tricky yeah yeah it was a it was a fun one it's interesting there are times where i bump up against things that i have not had to do in my programming career and i'm like having not done that yet it sounds almost infinitely complicated in a way because i haven't had to wrap my head around it so it's like i have no idea how deep that complexity goes and uh it's a little intimidating yeah it's intimidating for me too because it's like you know, every day I feel like I'm learning something working on drip because, you know, there's challenges of scale. There's challenges of like the concurrency thing we just talked about. And, you know, none of this I've done before. And I I don't think, Mm -hmm. I'm not sure anyone else on our team has really dealt with, with a lot of these challenges. So we're all kind of just problem solving and, and, you know, reading stack overflow and figuring out the best way to do (laughs) things. And, um, I think that's kind of the the hidden secret that a lot of, a lot of teams are, are, you know, doing things for the first time and, and figuring out how to just figuring out how to get it done, you know? Totally. Totally. This, this reminds me of a, a thing I will sometimes say when I'm talking to groups of new developers mm-hmm. or people that are in like bootcamp type programs, uh, which is that this stuff is, is hard. And that state of being roughly at the edge of your own comprehension is kind of the day to day. Right. If you're going to be focused on the code side, like you're generally asked to do things that are kind of hard for you. And once you have those, there's going to be new hard things. And even if you had mastered all of your current technologies, new ones come out that you need to evaluate and consider and all that. So getting comfortable with that discomfort, I think, is an important part, probably of a lot of things. But in my experience, development is definitely 
it, it, it rears its head in development a lot. Yeah. And I think that's something that, you know, we've particularly been looking out for as we're trying to grow the team and we're evaluating new candidates. It's like, I think it's way more important to look for someone's problem solving capability. Like where, mm-hmm. how do they attack a different problem? And not, not so much like, have they dealt with that before? Or, you know, do they know how to create a model in Rails or something like that? It's more like, you know, trying to evaluate candidate based on their problem solving capability because most of the time they're going to be dealing with problems that they've never dealt with before. So, right. How do you test for that? Um, you know, it's, we're still experimenting with it. Um, I don't, Mm -hmm. I can't say that we have it down perfectly yet, but you know, some of the more recent strategies we've used is like basically mapping out kind of a simplified version of a problem that we're currently working on. Like, all right, Mm -hmm. we need to send, you know, broadcasts at, you know, to a certain number of subscribers um, within a certain amount of time. And, you know, here's our, we'll get on a whiteboard, we'll sketch out kind of our architecture, you know, here's our job servers, here's our database, here's where all these things are configured. How would you go about thinking about changing the system to handle this amount of load? And then we just kind of walk through and, and a lot of times the candidate will jump on the whiteboard and start kind of sketching out their methodology and how they would think about the problem. Um, you know, mm-hmm. we're not looking for a perfect solution, obviously, because this is just in planning, but that kind of helps us to see like how this person thinks about problems. Mm-hmm. Totally. So you use CodeTree for managing work stuff. Do you also have like a personal to-do system? Yeah. So I've recently started doing this. Um, I keep a Trello board for myself that is kind of like a, a precursor to GitHub issues. Mm-hmm. So I'll put things in there like need to spec out this specific subsystem and assign to people or now since joining lead pages there's been a little bit more meetings going on a little bit more strategic planning and interfacing with different teams so um, i found that you know trello kind of helps me keep my own to-do list organized and then then ultimately leads to uh, development tasks Mm -hmm. Hmm. was it an easy decision to sell to lead pages i think that's a complicated question um you know, we had a lot of time to kind of evaluate, you know, whether this was the right move for the company and, and for the founders and for the employees. It took about nine months end to end to to close the deal. So, you know, during the whole process, we were looking at one, wanting to make sure that this was a win for our customers, two, that it was a win for the, the existing employees. Mm-hmm. And just to make sure that like, the company that we're joining aligns in the same values and culture that we've established at drip. And so, um, you know, we obviously had a lot of contact with, with clay and the management team there at lead pages through the whole, um, acquisition process. And by the end, we were definitely convinced that, you know, this was a good move for the company in terms of like being able to take drip to the next level. It was definitely a win for the employees. And so, you know, bottom line, we were kind of able to assess that out over time. Nice. So did you struggle internally with any of this, like late nights, like sitting in bed thinking about things? Or did it kind of like progress fairly smoothly for you saying, yeah, this actually does seem like a good idea? I mean, I think when you're in the middle of negotiation, it can kind of mess with your head a little bit, you know, Mm -hmm. like, it's an interesting position to be on, because on the one hand, it's like, you know, what you're working towards is potentially a really good thing. But when you're in the middle of it, kind of in the weeds, working out details of like, how is this actually going to be structured and you know mm-hmm. what are the dollar figures and what are the what are the terms and arrangement and do we have to relocate and you know all these things are kind of flying around and um it does get stressful you know mm-hmm. um but i think now coming out of it and being able to reflect on it 
you're kind of able to get clarity on you know that yes this was a this was a healthy process but i think when you're in the middle of it there are definitely some some late nights and some some stress there i believe it yeah that's that seems to be everyone's uh, experience report after after an acquisition is that it's like unbelievably time consuming and pretty stressful yeah just i mean due diligence fortunately rob kind of bared the brunt of that yep it's it's pretty intense and i i had sold um shortly before closing the lead pages deal i sold code tree um mm-hmm. and that was you know comparatively a much smaller deal but just going through that process let me kind of have a glimpse at um how intense due diligence really can be because mm-hmm. um, it was it took many hours of my time um just kind of working through that deal and so you know drip being 10 times larger mm-hmm. was definitely pretty intense yeah i'm sure so why don't we talk for just a minute about how to proceed for later episodes? Sure. I think because Chris and I had sort of had this mastermind style where we're talking about what we're working on. And so I thought it would be cool if we, now that people are kind of introduced to you and Drip and what you're working on, if we move to something more like that for the next one. Does that work for you? Yeah, that sounds good. Okay. So maybe next time we'll talk about what we're working on, what the week was and what the challenges are. Cool. I'm looking forward to it. And i Thanks again for uh, for bringing me on the show as a, as a guest co-host. I've been a longtime fan of the podcast and ThoughtBot in general. I'm curious to learn more about kind of the inner workings of ThoughtBot too. So, Oh, awesome. Good. Well, feel free to ply me and hit me with questions. All right. Once you're used to behind the scenes, you, you forget what people don't know or what sure. might be interesting. Sure. And I'll try to do the same for you and we'll, we'll bring out the best in each other, hopefully. Sounds good. Cool. Uh, so I think that's it for this time. All right. So today's show is produced and edited by Tom Obarski. If you'd like to access the show notes for this episode, you can go to giantrobots.fm slash 207. Thanks for listening.